That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, it's very good to see you here in person, and uh, thank you to Ken for inviting me. Uh, there are some phrases we have heard a lot during the pandemic, um, like these unprecedented times and uh, the new normal, and uh, I'm sorry you're on mute. But recently, I've heard quite a lot of people say it's not much of a life right now. Not much of a life. And that begs the question, what is a life worthy of that name? Oscar Wilde once said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people are just existing. And I think most people at some times would feel like that and, and would not be quite sure what is going to turn existence into life. And even those of us who would call ourselves Christians are not immune from that feeling, are we, that we are just existing? Uh, many of us, I suspect, have felt like that over the past months. So the question is, what turns existence into life? That's the question that gets answered in the Bible passage that Peter just read for us. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we will dive into it together. Father, please use this part of your word to show us more of what you are like and of what it means to be made by you and for life in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if Genesis was a film, so far we've been shown the wide-angle shot of God creating the universe and the earth and us within it. And now, uh, that's Genesis 1, now in Genesis 2, the camera zooms in on some of the key relationships that God made us for. So relationship with him, uh, with one another, with the opposite sex particularly, and with creation and so on. And uh, it begins like this. And these uh, verses should be coming up behind you. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And that's the first appearance of a kind of heading that you find throughout Genesis. So a little bit later, uh, you get the heading, these are the generations of Noah. And what comes next is the story of Noah and his sons, because that heading, these are the generations of Fred, let's say, means this is the story of Fred and his offspring. Uh, this is their family history. So when verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, it means this is the story of the heavens and the earth and the offspring that God put in them. In other words, this is the human family history. So the writer of Genesis meant us to read this as about real events and a real original human pair even if, as we see, some of the details are symbolically told. And he says three things here about the life that God made them and us for, and here's the first one. God is the one who gives us life. God is the one who gives us life. Now, Genesis has already said that in chapter one, but chapter two, like I've said, zooms in for a close-up. So let me read to you verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So that means we are not here by accident as the atheistic evolution story would have it. We are here by personal creation. And the picture in verse seven is of God as the potter and Adam is this lump of clay that he is shaping uh, because that particular word formed was exactly the one that they used of potters forming a pot. Uh, we visited a pottery a while ago where the potter very kindly let our three children in turn sit on her lap and help in inverted commas with the pot that she was making. Thankfully at that stage all pottery is reversible. And her shop was full of beautiful one-off pieces. And I said to her, how do you feel about selling these? And she said, well, it's actually quite hard because she said, for everything I make, I put something of myself into them. Every one of them is personal, she said. And the picture in verse 7 is this lovely one of the love and the value that God the potter places on his very first one-off personal creation. And each of us was likewise made by God as another of his loved and valued one-off personal creations. That is what you are. That is what I am. And we can say that because uh, Job said it later in the Bible. It wasn't just Adam. Job said, your hands formed and made me. Remember that you have made me like clay. Uh, I was reading 
a celebrity autobiography recently, and it sadly described uh, the loveless childhood of this now star. And he said, the day came when dad explained that I was an accident and never really wanted. But according to verse 7, whoever else says you are an accident, whether it's Darwinism uh, or your dad, and whoever else doesn't want you in their circle of friends, whoever else doesn't uh, include you, whoever else doesn't offer you a place or a job or doesn't rate you at work or grade you an A, God loves and values you as his one-off personal creation. And knowing that helps turn existence into life. So it was good for me to get up this morning. I'm preaching this morning here, this evening at JPC. I don't know how that will go. I don't know how it will be beneficial. But to get up and think before all of that, I am loved and valued simply by creation. That's the main point uh, in verse 7. So what's the point of verses 5 and 6, which go like this? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist, or you can translate that rain cloud, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man. And the point of that is that God doesn't just give us life, he gives us what we need for life as well. So remember, Genesis 2 zooms in on what we've already seen in Genesis 1. And this is zooming in on day 6 of creation. You remember when God made man and woman. But here's the puzzle. Back in day 3, vegetation had already appeared on the earth. So what do you make of verse 5 here, where apparently there's no vegetation on this close-up of day six? Well, the answer is it's not talking about the whole earth. It's talking about the land, the particular bit of land that God had earmarked for the original human pair. And it's talking about the Middle East. That's where he planted them, as it were. And in the Middle East, there is a cycle of dry and then rainy seasons. And so verse five again, just read it through. When... No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field, in other words, edible crops, that's talking about, had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, it was still the dry season, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist or rain cloud was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. In other words, the rainy season was just beginning, then the Lord God formed the man. In other words, he only gave him life when the conditions for life were ticked. So verse 5 reminds us that it doesn't just rain, but God causes it to rain. And verse 10, a little bit later, reminds us that there are other ways that he delivers water for us as well. Because it says a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So this is a reminder that what we need for life does not just happen. And uh, it's not just down to Northumbrian water uh, and Little up the road and John Lewis in town. It's all ultimately thanks to the Lord because he loves and values you as his one-off personal creation. And he hasn't put you in the world then just to neglect you and forget about your needs. He'd never do that. 
Isn't that why the Lord Jesus said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is one we really need for current times. Do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Of course you are. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, you know, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? Is my job secure? Where will I get another one? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So as Christian believers, we don't need to join the rest of the world in being anxious about looking out for number one because someone else is already looking out for you. And of course, unlike the birds, we do need to sow and reap and store away in barns. We do need to train for work and look for work and do work, but not with the anxiety of thinking, you know, no one else is looking out for me. Uh, No one else is ultimately on this. Our Heavenly Father is ultimately on it for each one of us. And would he die for you on the cross? Would he send his son to die for you on the cross only to neglect your lesser needs? We may have to wait for them, but we won't be in want. So God doesn't just give us life, but what we need for life as well, which means we can trust him, especially when it's not obvious where our needs are next going to be met. And it also means we can thank him when the rest of the world is just accepting these things as those things that just happen, just take for granted. Someone came up to me after a funeral that I had spoken at, Uh, And she said, uh, I'm an atheist myself, but I envy you because there is so much to feel thankful for in life and I have no one to thank. To which my reply was, because you think, I'm never going to see you again, so I might as well try and get away with this. I, I said, oh, yes, you do. You just haven't started thanking him yet. And as Christian believers, we know who we have to thank. And that also helps turn existence into life. But the Lord provides way more than just what we strictly need, doesn't he? Did you notice that in the reading? Look on to verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And the word for garden means parkland or pleasure garden. It's the word from which we get our word paradise. And there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God clearly thinks that life should be about more than just existence. He clearly thinks it's about pleasure and beauty and sights that take your breath away and move you to tears and creativity and the arts. I take it that explains the throwaway line in verse 11 about the whole land of Havilah where there's gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there as if, as if the Lord planted them there for future generations of jewelers to play with. And it's about music and poetry and literature and film and theatre and and all the rest of it. And so it's really sad that Christians have sometimes got the reputation for being life-denying. As if all of those things I've mentioned are, are all bad. Rather than the mixture of good and bad that they inevitably are in a fallen world. Uh, Someone once said, Puritanism, which was a sort of strand of very committed Christianity, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be enjoying themselves. Uh, 
That's really sad that that quotation lives on. It's not just unfair on most of the Puritans who actually did enjoy themselves, but it certainly doesn't reflect this, does it? Where God clearly wants us to enjoy life and not just exist. And that may be news to you if you're just looking into Christianity and so far you've, you've just taken in the cultural lie that God is the great cosmic spoil sport in the sky that the thing he most wants to do is to get into your life and stop your fun that's not what he's like so that's the first thing God is the one who gives us life the second is that real life means relationship with God let me read from verse 8 again And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we meet two trees that stand for two truths about relating to God. And the first is the tree of life. And if you go to Bible Gateway or something like that and you do a search for the tree of life, it pops up again in Proverbs and Revelation. And in both places, it symbolizes life lived in relationship with God. It symbolizes the truth that the only life worth living, because it's the one we were made for, is life with God at the very center of it. So here in Genesis 2, um, it might have been a real tree, in the garden with, with a kind of meaning attached to it. I personally think it's more likely that it was a symbol, uh, just like in Proverbs and Revelation, and it stands for life lived in constant friendship with God. And that is the thing that turns existence into life because we can have all our needs met and we can have all those other things on top, can't we? Like, like, like pleasure and beauty and art and music and all the rest of it. And let's chuck in love and success as well and still feel like we're just existing. That's why it's good to read the odd celebrity autobiography, isn't it? Because time and time again, they are people saying, I've got everything and I'm just existing. What am I missing? A while back, uh, we had a student called Patrick in our church family, and I interviewed him at the front of church once about how he had come to faith. And he said something I've never forgotten, and was completely unscripted as well, because he was converted out of what the world would have said was just the absolute definition of a good time. So uh, Patrick said, you know, I was into drinking, I was into girls, I was into everything that was supposed to be fun. And uh, he said to everyone, but in my experience, the non-Christian life is like vegetarian food. You can eat as much of it as you like, and it never fills you up. And then I could see his face drop as I was standing next to him as he realized he'd offended and alienated every vegetarian in the building. So he tried to say something kind of conciliatory about macaroni cheese. But then he said, I would never swap the life I have now for the existence I had then. Life, existence. Because he discovered the truth of the tree of life, which is that the only life worth living, because it's the one we were made for, is life with God at the very center. Or as Augustine put it in one of his prayers, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I don't know, maybe that feeling of restlessness is 
is just moving you inch by inch towards Jesus as you check him out in this church family. Uh, And I wonder if those of us who've already come to faith in Jesus really appreciate enough the life we have in him compared to the existence we would be living if we were without him. So God's the one who gives us life. Real life means relationship with God. Lastly, relationship with God means he defines good and evil. He calls the shots. Look at verse 9 again. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So two trees that stand for two truths about relating to God. We've looked at the tree of life. Now we need to work out the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, we're told more about that tree in verse 15 where it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You've got that much freedom, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what does that tree stand for? We'll take a look at this uh, picture Um, The crown at the top stands for the Lord, for God. Uh, The stick person stands for Adam in the first place, but you and me, every human being. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands for who has the right to define good and evil? Who has the right to draw the line between good and evil? Who has the wisdom and the knowledge to, to do that? to draw the circle that we should live inside for our own good? And the answer is, only God does. And so he says to Adam, and through Adam to all of us, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You've got phenomenal freedom, unlike anything else in this creation. But you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, you are not free to define for yourself what is good and evil. You're not free to draw for yourself that circle in which you live. It is my place to draw the circle. It is your place to trust me and live inside it. At which our culture would scream, no! Why would you want to outsource your freedom to anybody else or anything else? Why would you want want to let anything or anyone else decide what you're free to be and do? Freedom is being what you want to be and doing what you want to do. For example, Richard Dawkins says this in The God Delusion. There's something infantile in the presumption that somebody else has a responsibility to give your life meaning and point. The truly adult view, he's good at um, patronizing the people he wants to put down, isn't he? The truly adult view, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful as we choose to make it. So we define reality. We define good and evil. We define gender. We define sexuality. We define marriage or scrap it as we choose. We define life. And that's the culture we're in, this side of Genesis 3. But Genesis 2 is how it's meant to be and is how the Lord Jesus is remaking it in your life if you're trusting in him and you have him as Lord. 
And is that picture that I'm living in and many of you are living in, is that picture really of someone being infantile? I think it's better to call it childlike. And is, it, is there something wrong with a child trusting its parents' wisdom for decisions that are beyond it? And isn't that what Proverbs is on about when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So when the world says, Ian, why would you let God set limits on your freedom? My answer is because I recognize the limit of my wisdom. I'm not wise enough to draw the circle. And I recognize I'm a creature made to be in the image of my creator and that only he knows what will therefore fulfill me and that my freedom is not uh, being what I want to be or doing what I want to do, it's being what I was made to be. Some friends of ours uh, have a goldfish which from time to time jumps out of its bowl and lands on the table. And thankfully, so far, someone has always been there to pop it back in. And you can see it from the fish's point of view because it's in the same bowl with the same weed and the same rock and the same view every single day. And it wants some freedom. But actually, the life of true freedom for a fish is to be a fish. And that means living in water with all the limits that that brings. And the life of true freedom for us is to be the creatures that we were made to be with all the wise and loving limits that brings in relationship with God. And that's what the Bible says turns existence into life. Whereas if you jump out of the bowl of relationship with God, the end of verse 17 says, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love and the value that you've placed on every one of us here, once through creation uh, and once more through the cross. And for those of us who don't yet know ourselves in relationship with you through Jesus, we pray you'd help us to feel that love and value in our hearts and uh, continue to live out our created identity and purpose. And for those of us who are still uh, outside of that and looking for that, whose hearts are restless till they find their rest in you, uh, we pray that you would lead them home to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.